Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. Please take a minute and pull up the scripture on your Bible, on your devices, or you could um, look at the slide behind me. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I, have, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and, invite, and invited them to, sorry, to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at, on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd now like to invite Minister Pat to come up on stage, and Minister Pat will be sharing again on our sermon series, The Three Kings. The sermon today is titled, A Good Start. Good morning. Just want to start to tell you by t telling you a story about Corey Tenboom. I see Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy. They were Christians at the start of World War II. They were committed to sheltering Jews from the Nazis, and they rescued many before they were arrested and imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. There. Betsy died. 
But Corey was miraculously spared in order for her to testify of how God saves, heals, even forgives. You see, when asked how to face fear, she would tell this story. When I was a little girl, I went to my father and said, Daddy, I was afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, said father, when you take a train trip to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, my father said. And so it is with God's strength. Our Father in heaven knows when you will need the strength to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. He will supply all you need just in time. You see, by her father's wisdom, Corey was prepared to face her fears with faith. Last week, Pastor Jeff led us through three chapters, ending with 1 Samuel chapter 31. We saw the impact that fear had on Saul, on his kingship, and in the death of his sons, all at the hands of the Philistines. This week, we continue our sermon series, Three Kings, the Bad, the Good, and the Ugly. Today, we look at what made King David good. And we'll do that by looking at the three trials and three victories that are embedded in the story of David and Goliath. Now, if you associate Saul with fear, then let's associate David with faith. David was better than Saul in this one important way. David was not compromised by fear. David prevailed over fear by faith because he believed. As we see in today's key verse from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, uh, that is the Philistines who dare to curse the God of Israel, into our hands. And so we'll jump into this right after this prayer. Uh, our God in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom that we can draw from the hard lessons of Saul, David, and Solomon. God, as we look at your preparation of David by these three trials and victories, I pray you arouse within us this greater conviction and courage to face the fears, anxieties, and doubts in our lives. We want to believe and obey, so help our faith as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in verse 1, we learn that the Philistines have marshaled their armies for battle, and they were gathered there in Soko, which belonged to Judah. You see, back in Samuel chapter 11, after Saul was anointed king, Saul faced and was tested by the Ammonites. And now, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, after David was anointed king, David now faced the Philistines, and here he would be tested. The Philistines, if you don't know, are the neighbors to the west. The Philistines lived along the Mediterranean coast. Their culture was sensual and hedonistic. Their worship was embedded with prostitution. 
and their foreign policy was aggressive military expansion. Take note where the Philistines have parked their armies. They parked their armies in, an, in a patch of land that belonged to Judah. So this was not simply a standoff. This was invasion. This was the exploitation of a nation that had been weakened under the leadership of Saul. Life and death hung in the balance. So in verses 2 to 3, we get a better view of the land. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So the Philistines stood on one mountain, Israel stood on the other mountain, and a valley was in between. And out of the camp of the Philistines came this champion named Goliath of Gath. That word champion is very special. It's just found here in chapter 17 and again in chapter 23. And in Hebrew, it's the combination of these two words, man and in between, and taken as such, it's literally man steps out in between the two armies. Now, Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon translates this Hebrew and, and calls Goliath uh, the middleman, the mediator. And when the Philistines stepped out, he was towering. He measured six cubits in a span, and, and you know, Goliath was as tall as our tallest NBA players. Now, when you think tall, think tall like Taco Fell, who once played for the Celtics before he went to the Cavs. And not only was this Philistine mediator physically superior, he was also technologically superior. Now, now typically in the Bible, you know, we get these descriptions, but the descriptions are very laconic. You know, they, we get details that are provided, but only just enough. But here in chapter 17, we have three full verses that are devoted to detailing his equipment, his helmet, his coat of bronze mail, and his armor alone weighed 5,000 shekels. Now, modern-day equivalent is 125 pounds. So why do you suppose the Bible provides us so much detail? You see, the details of his height, of his size, of his equipment is meant to trigger within us a fear response, and certainly this was true among the Israelites. It's a thematic effect. He's big. He's technologically superior. He's intimidating. Now, do you remember what we learned when Saul was selected? As Israel's first king, God gave the people what they wanted, a man who was taller, mightier, and better looking than the rest. Saul looked like a king. And in chapter 16, the prophet had already forgotten that lesson. Concerning Eliab, God told Samuel, don't look at the height of his stature. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's 1 Samuel, verse 16, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Now neither size, nor appearance, nor might of the Philistines mattered. Only the purposes of God matters. His purposes cannot be thwarted. God provides the victory, whether by many or by the few. 
And that is the lesson that God wants us to learn today. But I also, I, I want to ask you, will you, will you trust God no matter what the circumstances look, how possible or impossible? I, I, I know many of you, as you consider that question, will say, well, yes, God, but there's just going to be as many of us that are going to say, yes, God, but how? You see, just look at that Philistine. He's ginormous. He's scary. And he doesn't just look scary. He also sounds scary. In verses 8 to 9, he shouts out for all of Israel to hear, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. See, Goliath isn't just mean. He's insulting. Goliath is schooling Israel on this practice of champion warfare, also known as single combat. You see, it's a duel between two single warriors that takes place in the context of a battle between two armies. And so, not only is Goliath mean and insulting, but he's also insolent. You see, listen as I read verse 10 for you. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. You see, when you hear that word defy and you consider that attitude, we find it showing up throughout our passage. It's a strong word. It means to taunt, to scorn, or to disgrace. It was a grave insult. And so how would the people respond? See, God prepares a champion for Israel, and his name, of course, is David. But God will give him two trials before he will be ready to face Goliath. And so we're going to take a look at that first trial now. You know, following his anointing, David resumed his duties. 1 Samuel 16, 19. For Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. Now we read in 1 Samuel 17, 13 to 15. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now consider the excitement. One moment David's in the Bethlehem field. The next moment he's in the court of the king. But that thrill of royal service would not last long. See, David, the soother of souls, was no longer needed. Though the king was looking for warriors, Saul could not see in David the mighty man of valor that he was. So David resumed his role as shepherd, tending his father's sheep. This was the hardest of the three trials but it formed the humility by which David would endure. And what we observe here with David, we see much more vividly in Jesus Christ, in his life. You see, according to the Gospel of Luke, 
At the age of 12, Jesus was found sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And in Luke 2, 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was submissive to them. And after this spark of brilliance, of divine brilliance, Jesus remained in obscurity for another 18 years. Such was David's first trial here, alternating from one extreme to the next, from being exalted to being neglected. Christian writer and theologian C.S. Lewis shared this insight about humility. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help? Why do we face such hard things? Why do we have opposition? You see, God uses affliction to mold and to teach us and to draw us near to him. Following that victory in humility comes the next trial. Through it, we observe David's meekness. It's the product of his devotion to God. It's piety. We read here, for 40 days the Philistines came forward every morning, evening, and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. I see... Jesse was understandably concerned about his sons. The three eldest were right there on the battlefront. The eldest of them, Eliab, the pride of his father's heart. So dad sends David on an errand. Dad tells David, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token back to me. You see, Dad's just checking on the kids. But as we take a closer look at David, we notice that he appears on the scene much less a warrior and much more like a delivery man. You see, the anointed king of Israel, he's delivering DoorDash in his nation's moment of greatest need. And like Joseph, when his father Jacob sent him to check on his brothers in Shechem, you see, 
David wasn't welcomed with thanks. His brothers greeted him with disdain and with vicious insinuations. And again, we can draw this connection by looking at Jesus, who sympathized with his people. You see, when Jesus began his public ministry, the first place that he preached was in the synagogue there in his hometown, Nazareth. You see, he, he loved his mother, and because he's Jesus, he also loved the people and his hometown. Love compelled Jesus to preach at that synagogue, but they would not receive him. This is what Jesus said. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And that's from John chapter 4, verse 44. I know some of you are enduring a long and difficult trial. There are some of you right here in this room who are waiting for a promotion. You're waiting for some acknowledgement or affection from someone special. Maybe you're recovering from an injury. Maybe you're battling some addiction or struggling with isolation and depression. Maybe you're having a hard time forgiving or dealing with a betrayal. Maybe it's just too much. And so you blow a fuse, you punch back, you, or you sulk away. You lose it, and you're thrown off. Yet David went between Elah and Bethlehem for 40 days, and every day was an opportunity to get jabbed by his brothers. And surely it must have been hard for David not to retaliate. Now, have you ever noticed that those people who have a tender conscience tends to be those who are most sensitive? You know, so they may be timid and who, when they're hurt, they might feel insecure, irritable, perhaps even resentful. Yet for those who learn to sanctify that indignation, anger can be turned into righteous resilience, a turning literally of evil to good. And this is the victory that God wants for you. It's the meekness of Christ. You see, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. The meek are not just those who hold their tongue or turn the other cheek. The meek are not weak. But in a surprising twist, the meek possess holy strength this righteous resilience that's under divine control. Jesus also called for piety, teaching his disciples, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now the next time you hear that verse, I want you to think of piety. Because piety is love for God that is rooted in the heart and soul, the strength and the mind. For Christians, piety means trusting and loving God by following him closely and by living by his mercy and strength. So by two trials, David has achieved two victories, humility 
and piety by meekness. Now David was finally ready for his third trial. King Saul tried to equip David with his own armor and sword, but immediately David took them off. Then he took off his then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. See, with humility and deep love, David entered battle with what God had provided for him. And so now we're ready to take a look at this third trial and victory. Two champions battle. David prevails over Goliath. Both armies are spared. And according to the terms of champion warfare or single combat, the Philistines had agreed to surrender to Saul's armies. But they reneged and they started to run away. And so quickly the hills emptied as the armies of Israel pursued the Philistines in the direction of Ekron. Back on the battlefield, at David's feet, laid a headless body. What can we learn? First, David foreshadows the true king. He was a type of Christ. Jesus, after he was baptized and before the start of his public ministry, he too was taunted and tested in the wilderness by Satan. Notice this parallel. As the Christian champion Jesus faced Satan's contempt for God. As Israel's champion, David faced Goliath's contempt for God. And we read this in verses 41 to 44. Meanwhile, the Philistines, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. We can follow David's example. When persecuted, we too can find ways to extend grace. Second, Jesus did not battle as a deity, but he battled as a mere mortal, like David, like you or I. We can, like Jesus, we can reach for those smooth stones that are in the stream, those stones being the word of God, and that were available and accessible to those first century Jews, such as the verses that were found in Deuteronomy. Jesus showed how to sling those stones of Scripture and defeat Satan. God would have us prioritize prayer and scripture memorization to battle the enemy of our souls. Third, before he unleashed a stone in his sling, David gave his first recorded sermon right there in verses 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know Oops. All those who are gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. See, David testified to his faith and belief that God will deliver Goliath into his hands, saying, the Lord saves. The Lord saves, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now consider what grace you have experienced recently. How might you share that grace to encourage or build someone up? And fourth, why did he pick five stones? Now, if David was certain that he was going to kill Goliath with the first, let's look at verses 48 to 49. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. One stone, one giant. Many commentators that suggested that those extra stones were a backup. But I'm actually intrigued by what pastor and theologian J. Vernon McGee he suggests that God had commissioned David and his men to exterminate the entire line of Goliath. From 2 Samuel 21-22, we know that David and his men were responsible for killing all four sons. Now, this comes as an unexpected reminder for us. Because the battle belongs to the Lord, we can have confidence to follow God until his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you see, obviously Goliath, except for the faith of David, would have been stronger than Saul's armies. Yet the giant did not die by sword or spear, but by David's pious faith in God. Israel defeated the Philistines because God had prepared David to face his fears by faith in God. As you consider the incredible events of the story, how will you apply them to your life? Are you willing to follow David's example by stepping out and trusting the Lord to use you for his kingdom? You see, regarding humility, will you insist on doing it alone and leaning on your own understanding. The Lord can and will empower and use you if, like King David, you will, are willing to trust completely in him and his resources, meaning you have to let go of the world's ways and the way that they do business. Now, regarding piety and meekness, how will you respond to oppositions and the problems that you face in your life? The Lord wants you to deal with your problems as David dealt with his. 
calling the problem as God calls it and calling yourselves as God calls you. For David, the problem with Goliath wasn't just that he was the champion for the Philistines. You see, the problem was that he was an uncircumcised Philistine. He was a sinner. He opposed the living God. So you must not consider yourself like a servant in the army of Saul. No, you must remember that you are a member of the army of the living God. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the battle belongs to him. That is the starting point of victory in your life. So the importance of piety and learning the way of meekness is seen in the virtue of Christian faith. Meekness is a demonstration that our faith is living, it's powerful, it's healthy. Meekness is the posture and attitude that we bring to worship and loving one another. And finally, regarding faith, will you rely on someone else's equipment and use other people's strategies? Will you fight as they fight? In Christ, the true king, God has provided the what and the who that you need in order to fight the battles that God leads you into. You see, I cannot possibly overstate the importance of faith and living piously with humility. Such faith enables you to face fears with reliance on God. Such faith shows that it doesn't depend on knowing something or using the right technique. Such faith comes from knowing that you belong to God. So when God fights for his glory, he's fighting for you because you represent his glory. When God fights, he always wins because the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we know what fear can do to us. Our fears are intimidating. They are demoralizing. They are debilitating. Lord, help us to remember the good you've done in the past that we may have faith in our present circumstances. Help us to choose faith over fear, to live humbly, to pursue holiness, and to celebrate who we are and appreciate all we have because of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will choose to exalt the name of Jesus, testify to his incomparable reputation, and abide by his authority. O Lord, give us courage to face the trials and endure the proving of our faith for the name of your glory, for the sake of your glory, and in your name we pray, amen.